welcome to Movie the Musical, a podcast about movies that have been turned into musicals. I am your host, Ben Kay. We are here to investigate, interrogate, and celebrate the art of adaptation from screen to stage. We are a podcast that loves questions, and today's very earnest question is, is today's guest just our podcast's good luck charm because both of our main feed episodes that today's guest has been on i i'm gonna make the argument that they are two of the best film to stage adaptations (laughs) that we've that exist i'm i know that we're probably gonna have a lot of conversation i know we're all in agreement about the film but Mm -hmm. i i have a i am gonna posit that today's musical is one of the best film-to-stage adaptations ever made. That's my that's my wow. stake. That's pretty good. It's, I'm, the only one I was thinking of when watching it and listening to it this morning was Little Shop, which we have said is the best thing we will cover on here. Yes, so. <laughs> but I'm just saying that I... I, th- I mean... And the and also just like is this just the best movie we're ever going to talk about on this on this podcast? <laughs> I mean, most likely, honestly, it, yes. It also goes with my previous theory uh, or previous thesis of um, all the best films that we will cover have happened between 1955 and 1965. Yes, it goes with like those are the best <laughs> movies uh, and sometimes the best musicals, but. Those are the best films we've covered. Ah, what a time. Well, if you haven't figured that out already because of how podcasts work, um, (laughs) today's episode is about 1963's Eight and a Half, directed by Federico Fellini, and its subsequent 1982 musical theater adaptation, Nine, (laughs) with a book by Arthur Copet and music and lyrics by Maury Yeston. Uh, as always, our wonderful producer and editor, Bran Moorhead, is here. Hello, Bran. Hello, everybody. Uh, Go watch a Fellini movie. Please. Um, <laughs> Start your morning with Fellini. That We were just right before we started recording talking about uh, our host Ben's morning routine of starting his day with watching a film at like six in the morning. Yes. Some crazy hour like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, so you should do that with this movie, Eight and a Half. Yes. Uh, and here... As today's resident Fellini experts, um, who is gonna <laughs> give us a who I who I know, and we'll t- we'll get to it in a little bit. Um, you know them from the little shop episode. You know them as again the maybe secret good luck charm of this podcast. Uh, it's Sid Branca. They've returned to the main feed. Hello, I'm so delighted to be back and to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time. Again, yeah, it is not only just like uh, yeah, I would say. I watched this movie for the first time yesterday. Oh, I watched it. Uh, I watched it again this morning. <laughs> I have a feeling I will be watching it many, many times throughout however long I am on this earth. Um, eight and a half. It is. I mean, I, I we'll get into it. We'll dig into it. I just, I it is one of the greatest films ever made. Like, and mm-hmm. we'll, and we're not just gonna like say that. We're not just gonna be like, oh, like I'm sure we'll get into it. And <laughs> Sid Sid Branca, from from your social media posts, it seems like you've been doing a deep dive into Fellini. You have been reading and watching, and maybe listening, I don't know. Um, Maybe eating, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe you've just been only eating Italian food for the past few weeks. Well, you know, something that I 
I got as far as finding out exists, but did not actually track down and plan to, is that um, Fellini's sister did release a cookbook at one point that is like an autobiographical cookbook that I believe is called like At the Table with Fellini or something like this. Of course. Um, And I really want to track it down and, and, and... Try making some of the recipes because that's a fun reason. Should have called it the flavor of Fellini. <laughs> oh, better name. You can enjoy all five of your senses can experience the wonder of Federico Fellini. Um, and listen, and so uh, what about touch? How's touch get in there? I don't know you. You touch some beautiful Italian woman comes over and is wearing like a wool, an amazing gown. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the Fellini baton is uh, being passed over by Connor Allen Smith, who was our guest on the uh, Knights of Kiberia Sweet Charity episode and is mm. now being passed this way to, what, yeah, again, what is considered his sort of seminal work, eight and a half, eight, 8.5, if you will. Um, <laughs> which, again, we'll obviously, we'll, we'll dig into the musical, but I think the funniest thing about the musical is that, you know, obviously it's called, it's called Nine. Mm-hmm. They changed it. They added a point five, and Maury Yeston's uh, explanation is: you know, if you add music to eight and a half, that's essentially half a number more. Which is like, sure, whatever helps you sleep at night. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's such a ridiculous Bizarre. explanation. It, it is and one I mean, of the most ex- yeah, one of the most inexplicable things about the show. Yeah, it's incredibly funny to me as a title, and like, I, I think like. The title Eight and a Half right, comes from the uh, the fact that it was sort of Fellini's Eight and a Half movie. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The Eight and a Half refer it refers to like the number of movies he had directed because and the point five were like films he co-directed. Right. Exactly. He had like contributed to sort of like omnibus films um, mm-hmm. previously or like directed segments of things. So he was like, this is movie Eight and a Half. Um, sure. The original title. Um, like the working title of eight and a half for a while was um, the beautiful confusion. Sure. Which uh, I think is maybe a little too on the nose. And I think perhaps they wanted something a little bit more uh, opaque. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's still super meta. It's still, a, it's still a little on the nose. Right. In, yeah, a, in, mean, a, in a different way. Right. It's sort of directly pointing to the fact that it is sort of a, um, like a fictionalization of, um, or like a stand-in for Fellini's life, not in a totally one-to-one way, right? Um, yeah, there are definitely differences or sort of like fictionalizings that occur um, that make it not a purely autobiographical film. But uh, I think the the title does really just kind of point at the existence of that parallel. Um, and then just making it nine is just very funny to me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, I guess it's uh, whatever. It's it's one word. Maybe it's easier. Maybe I don't know. Maybe they couldn't allow decimals into the newspapers <laughs> in the early eighties. I don't know. Um, that's a silly thing. But Sid, as as I often like to do, um, tell us your history with Eight and a Half, and if you even want to go broader, your history with Federico Fellini. Yeah. So. Eight and a Half, um, specifically, is a film that I've rewatched a lot of times, and um, it's kind of become the movie that I watch when I'm sick. Like, you know, I feel like everyone has 
that the movie that they turn to for comfort when they like have the flu and are like delirious in bed and are like, I'm going to watch a movie that I've seen a million times that Mm -hmm. will like calm my soul. Um, And for me, that is eight and a half, which I think is kind of pretentious and kind of hilarious. Um, (laughs) But like, it's, it is honestly for a movie that again, like, yeah, call it pretentious, whatever the hell, (laughs) but like, it is a really easy watch I found. Yeah. Especially, like, if you're in a sort of fever dream state. Yes. Mm. It is a film that is structured somewhat similarly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you're kind of, like, drifting in and out of it, that supports what the film is doing as opposed to kind of, oh, God, I got to rewind again because I'm, like, not paying enough attention. And I got to, like, I got to follow the plot of this film. It's like, no, no, no. Um, you have to like kind of um, be carried along by the sort of dream logic of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so I've seen this movie like a ton, a ton of times, um, far more so than any other Fellini movie, although I've seen quite a few of them. Um, and I think Eight and a Half was probably the second one I ever saw of his films. Um, my first Fellini was uh, Satyricon. <laughs> Which is a okay. wild place to start. Um, I know, I, so again, I mean, this is actually also I've I've only watched Fellini films for this podcast. I've only mm. seen Knights of Kiberia and I've only seen uh, Eight and a Half. Even I, I own the fucking essential Fellini back then. <laughs> I, I mean, I got it because I knew we were doing this, and it's and based off of these two films alone. I'm like, yeah, I want to dig into the rest of his mm-hmm. whatever Criterion calls essential filmography. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think. A thing that is useful maybe to think about um, with Fellini's filmography in general is that the kind of earlier work is more closely related to um, the like Italian neorealism movement. Mm-hmm. Um, Fellini, in his early, the early part of his film career was working with uh, Rossellini, um, who was making kind of the kind of uh, quintessential neorealist films, which are like kind of, you know, um, gritty portrayals of the like hardship of the lives of impoverished people in post-war Italy. Mm-hmm. And they're very like, um, they're great films, but they're very like kind of grounded in um, reality. Yeah. Right. And like, they're not about these kind of like, um, fantastical and sort of spectacles and things like that in part because it's coming out of um it's like in reaction to world war ii yeah um and so that's kind of where italian filmmaking was and when fellini was first getting started um so he was like a script writer collaborating with rossellini um and he was also um, a cartoonist well, I mean, he's, he's said that if he wasn't a film director, he would want to work for the circus. I believe I saw that song. Yes, yes. Um, and you can actually... Checks out. Yeah. Oh, movie. oh, yeah. Yeah, and there are, like, there are clowns in so many Fellini movies. Yeah, like um, La, La Strada, I know, is sort of mm-hmm. a, big, a big one in that regard. Yeah, and he even has a sort of semi-fictional, semi-documentary film called The Clowns that yeah. is, like, about a circus. Um, and it, yeah, it's sort of, you see that repeatedly and like the kind of, um, 
and people working in the sort of um, aspects of the entertainment industry that are not so glamorous as like yeah. the mm-hmm. film industry um, are often characters in in his films. And so with his early films are more closely tied to this kind of Italian neorealism moment in film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like La Strada is a good example of where it's like, it's sort of a neorealist film, but then it's like also about um, like a clown. And there are these kind of like exaggerated behaviors, obviously related to that. And like a sort of like a bit more of a departure from realism. Yeah. The characters are, it's like this clown and this strong man and everybody's kind of like, um, elevated behavior wise and it's like is this realism and the characters are just like very eccentric or are we in a more kind of fantastic mode um and then and that's kind of the like earlier films are in this kind of like plausible realism zone and then i feel like with um with eight and a half it's really where like the intrusion or like expansion of fantasy into reality really becomes a part of his style of filmmaking i was about to say would you say that this is kind of like the fulcrum point for his career sort of like moving like fully away from like like you sort of alluded to italian realism into a place where like dream and reality sort of coexist within like the the stuff he's making yeah i mean i think you can like see that you can see elements of that in his films or his earlier films but it this really feels like where that gets like cranked up um because the film he made before eight and a half um was la dolce vita which like the the personalities are really big and there's like more there's like a lot more going on (laughs) and it's sort of like um but it is kind of still operating in like plausibly realism Mm -hmm. um and after la dolce vita which was like a huge hit um eight and a half kind of came out of Fellini like not knowing how to follow that movie up right like like the enormous pressure of having had this like very successful film and then like just really not knowing where to go from there right Um, I mean like it it almost feels like a really surreal take on like on in in what in like in France, what they call like auto fiction, right? It's almost mm-hmm. like a really, really absurd take on like. I mean, because yeah, like this was literally like what he was literally like on the set of a movie that he didn't know what it was gonna be, like about <laughs> to give a speech to the cast and crew, like explaining, I don't know what we're doing. There's no idea. We're about to shut it down. And it, it, from what I remember, while he was like delivering that speech, he's like, "Oh, this is the movie." Like, Mm -hmm. this, like, feeling of, like, abandon and hopelessness and, like, creative stagnation. Like, that is the thing. Yeah. Cool. And because, like, you know, and and so much of his, 
there's like an interest in making work about like performing mm-hmm. uh, and about like entertainment and about kind of like um you know the the the, the sort of cr- creation of fiction or like these sort of engines of entertainment like um you know there's um in La Dolce Vita, one of the main characters is an actress. Mm-hmm. Like the again, there's like lots of circus performers and things. Um, but like getting like more explicitly sort of meta cinematic um, with eight and a half, I think really yeah. kind of like dials that in with more intensity, right? To be like, okay, this is um, because like he had been like elements of his real life were present in his filmmaking practice prior to that. But like eight and a half, it's like, there are so many people playing themselves in eight and a half. Really? Wow. Like a lot of, um, I would actually, the audio commentary um, for the Criterion DVD is like pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, But like one of the fun things about it is that like, they just like keep pointing out that like, Oh, this person who's playing this journalist is this is, an actual journalist. Sure. Um, or like, I think specifically there's like a gossip columnist who is like just playing herself. And like, um, there's some of the actors too, like Claudia is Claudia, whatever her last name is mm-hmm. in real life. Does she doesn't even have one in the film, but yeah. And yeah, it's basically just like mm-hmm. being people. Claud- just being Claudia Cardinal. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I feel like the reason that, uh, Marcello's character is named Guido and not Marcello is because his character in La Dolce Vita is already named Marcello. Sure. <laughs> so you'd already done that one. You can't do that. Um, I want to, I mean, again, because everyone can clearly tell, there's a lot to dig into with this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the opening sequence, like, is, like, already, like, the greatest movie ever made in its, yes. in its own right. Like, the opening, just, like, two minutes is just, like, undeniable it's this like i mean like i think for for like my grand sort of like thoughts um watching the movie like especially like halfway through is like when i sort of realized that like i didn't know what was actually happening to guido or like what was a dream what was his reality like as soon as i realized that like it didn't matter what (laughs) was actually happening to him and what he was imagining that's when i was like oh okay great this is like um, like it's all this blend of just like mm-hmm. what he's actually going through, what he feels like he's going through, what his what his dream, what his dream sort of personification of his of his experience is. It's all the same. It is all the same for for Guido Anselmi, the the central director. Um, and that and you can see that I think earlier in the movie there are sort of more clearly delineated yeah. sections, and I think the movie itself does a good job of sort of ramping it up. Mm-hmm. And then finally you get the brunch sequence that goes into his harem home. <laughs> yes, and that's like you know from then on, who knows? Yeah, and I think part of why, like. I have a particular fondness for his films that are from like eight and a half on mm-hmm. um, is because that's also like when Fellini got really interested in like Jungian psychoanalysis. Yeah. Um, and so that I think becomes really present in how he's thinking about like dream and fantasy as being like a valuable part of reality. 
um, as a part of kind of unfolding events that things, images emerging from the, the subconscious are like archetypally related to what is actually <laughs> occurring. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, I think, of, um, and one of the things that I think is fun about Eight and a Half is the, um, the kind of enigmatic, like enigmatic magical phrase that gets used in it. Um, what is it? Anamisi. I got oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know exactly Asa what you're Masa, the whatever yes. it is. It's gibberish. You should look it up I mean, and it's... say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's basically what it is, is um, it's like Italian child pig Latin for uh, anima, which oh. is both the Italian word for soul and like a concept from Jungian analysis. It's yeah. uh, asa nisi masa is the phrase. Yes. yes. Um, yeah, it's basically like a thing from Fellini's childhood version of pig Latin. Right, and then um, that see, and then what when they like do that, it li it immediately moves into the sequence of of him as a kid. So mm -hmm. it's like they 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 freaking go. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so like, yeah. So it means soul in Italian, but it's like also this sort of idea for young about the kind of like, um, like the sort of archetypical internal embodiment of the feminine or something like this. Yeah. Um, that is like within all people. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's, so, so I, I was just thinking back to Ken, Sid, um, maybe you saw this, that I, part of me like doesn't want to know how they filmed <laughs> The opening sequence of him fly like floating in the air like a balloon. Oh, so cool! Like mm. it, it, it's it's amazing. Like when he falls with yes. the rope on his foot. Woo! Mm -hmm. Just like crazy. And then like like that cuts to like him in bed, his arm just like stretched up like into mm -hmm. the sky. So yeah. It's like again, I like it's that le that's from him. The film starts off with, him, but it, like it's amazing because you never you don't see his face until like five minutes into the movie it's all from like mm -hmm. behind him so it's him like trapped in this car during this traffic jam suffocating trying to get out and as soon as he gets out he's this like kite balloon floating in the sky that immediately falls into the ocean it is like just some of the most evocative imagery i've seen in a movie ever yeah and it really does in a symbolic way set up the kind of problems of the movie right yeah. it's like the the sort of feeling of being trapped but maybe trapped in a circumstance of your own creation yeah um and the, like the desire to sort of like drift freely while also being like pulled back down to earth um and i believe the people who are like pulling him back down are the actors that are like claudia's agent I think so, one, yeah. It's one of the producers. It's, like, people involved with, like, the sort of practicalities of the film. Mm -hmm. um, you know, not letting him just drift off like a cloud. Um, and before you are introduced to any of the actual plot elements of the film, you are placed inside the feeling of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Absolutely. I think the fact that we, we are kind of in this... Um, like a sort of a POV 
and also like the way that the camera moves it's mm-hmm. like it really places us there um right from the beginning and i think yeah. the the camera movement in eight and a half is really yeah the, the, the cinematography uh by gianni de venanzo uh which is Im- impeccable just like mm-hmm. and also just uh, we we've talked about uh we black and white photography is actually this is the third film in a row that huh? is a black and white film whoa it, it is. Sure is sweet smell of success young frankenstein and this arguably all masterpieces uh oh, yeah. to yeah, be totally. clear um yeah, and but, it's interesting too because like when Fellini is making films in color, they're like say, so this is, colorful. This is his final black and white film, right? I believe his I, very I next movie. I think so. Is, at least his very next like feature length film, I'm pretty sure, is is color. Um, but even and I was just so struck just the the use of like color con- color contrast in this thing is just like un unavoidable. It is just like the 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 blacks and the and the whites and sort of mm-hmm. how they're sort of playing off of each other just it creating this like beautiful imagery um yeah and yeah his film after this one um his feature film after this one was uh Juliet of the Spirits which is like very vivid in its color um and sure. also has um uh Sandra Milo in it mm-hmm. um who um <laughs> I cannot recommend highly enough the interview with her that is on the DVD extra like special features yeah. for the Criterion uh, edition of Eight and a Half. Um, it like blew my mind watching this interview <laughs> with her. Um, for one thing, according to her, she who plays the director's mistress in mm-hmm. the film. Mm-hmm. Um, was Fellini's mistress for approximately seventeen years in real life? Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> uh-huh. I was, yeah, I was, I, I was hoping, honestly, to <laughs> sort of delve into sort because of, I know you've you've been reading books about it. I'm curious, sort of, again, like, obviously, from a from a creative standpoint, this is clearly a very biographical film for Federico Fellini. Uh, mm-hmm. But then, of course, there's the question of like about his family and about his relationship sort of like how how sort of one-to-one is eight and a half with Fellini's actual life right yeah I mean I I think it's it feels telling to me that his wife is not in this film sure um she is she starts so the the film after this one Juliet of the Spirits is is starring um Julieta Messina um is that yes Julieta Messina um and Sandra Milo so his movie after eight and a half has both his wife and his mistress in it great boy oh boy like starring opposite each other <laughs> there basically. really is a lot of hashtag psychology in this thing yeah there's a lot going on <laughs> um and I'm just like so curious about that like yeah. I just like I would really love to know about that situation um well, and you know it's and it's interesting because yeah right because obviously obviously you know this is a this is a film about uh male ego right and mm-hmm. male ego and about totally. of like uh this art uh, and his sort of like vapids and uh not so great relationships with these women in his life but i think sort of what the like again like what the 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 harem sequence that brian you alluded to before like i think that's a great sequence where 
you can sort of see that Fellini sort of has a little bit of perspective on the story. Where he's not just like, mm. oh, Guido is so great. Guido is the, the greatest <laughs> yeah, of yeah. all. It's like, no, like, Fellini is aware that, like, these women would would and maybe will tear him to shreds if they ever got the chance. Like, Well, and it's interesting how those two, how that sequence uh, uses a lot of the same visual language as whenever he's being bathed by all those women as a kid. Sure. Like the wine bath or whatever, which mm-hmm. I guess that's a thing people <laughs> do in Italy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, those really, like, and those kind of mirroring, and I think that there's even some script similarities between some of the phrases that they yeah. use to like admonish him mm-hmm. so i mean it's like i said it's more more psychology again hashtag sure. psychology yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right yeah i mean i think yeah i think um fellini is is very deliberately showing guido as being like infantilized mm-hmm. um and like that he wants to be you know taken care of by these women but only when he wants to be mm-hmm. and that like um, I think that there, I don't think it's an uncritical view of Guido, even yeah. if he is a stand-in for Fellini in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, like, we are, um, there's a line in Little Tavita that I was watching this morning where, like, something is described, like, a recording is being described as, um, a dialogue between feminine wisdom and male uncertainty. Sure. (laughs) And I was like, oh, interesting. (laughs) Interesting. Well, well, it's interesting. One of the first lines that's spoken to Guido at the top of Eight and a Half is, I forget who it is specifically, but they're like, what are you cooking for us now? Another film with no hope? Um, (laughs) And I think it's so funny because, like, I actually think this is a film that has kind of a hopeful and because I know Fellini, yeah. Fellini, like initially, what like isn't there like a whole like other ending he wanted to make that like sort of potentially alluded to the character's suicide, which actually comes up again in nine. Uh, well, and, and in this movie, yeah, because yeah, he does he does like shoot himself. Oh, spoiler alert! Under the table. Um, sure. Yes. But like, not really. We're like, because right. in reality, I think it's him saying we're not making this movie. Right. Yeah. Because the next shot, the next thing we have is tear it down. We're, you know, we got to be out of here in two days. Yeah. Um, like, I think it, it, um, and yeah, the original ending was like supposed to involve a giant train. Yes. In some way. Um, okay. But I'm, I'm a, not a Guido, sure what. A, which again, they say in the musical, it's a Guido Contini signature to have trains in movies. I don't know. Sure. sure. Um, I can't. It, is that a Fellini know. signature? Does Fellini have a lot of trains? I don't think that's true. There is like, a train in, in a brilliant train shot in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah. but I'm trying Driving to think. Into that like, beautiful station. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and she's in that outfit. Ugh, things were so glamorous yes. in Italy in the '60s. <laughs> yeah, well, the costume yeah. design in this film was incredible. It oh, was it, beautiful. It, it won costumes, I think. Did it? it or, I think so. I think it won costumes black on black and white. I want to say, because um, yes. that's what they had back in the day. They had, right. uh, yeah, it won costume design, black and white film, and then of course it won uh, the foreign film Oscar. The, the uh-huh. what, what is now the international film Oscar. 
Um, yeah, everybody's glamorous. It's like everywhere they are is beautiful. Yeah, uh, I mean every everyone is beautiful and dressed to the nines. Um, Ooh, <laughs> everyone's yeah. everyone's dressed to the eight point fives. <laughs> everyone's dressed to the eight and a half. Um, yeah, well, and also what's the, I what's like the, the guy the... Marcel, the lead actor. Uh, Marcello Ma- Mastroianni, Mastroianni. Huh. Yeah, 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 something like that, yeah. Um, yeah, total babe. Um, yeah, I also like that they kind of, um, with the costume design of this film, it's like, okay, this is taking place at, like, a spa. Yes. That is supposed to be, where it's like, <laughs> so when people, and it's supposed to be, like, a warm weather time. Mm-hmm. And so when there are characters that are wearing, like, really elaborate, like, velvet and stuff, it's like deliberately a choice of like you are absolutely inappropriately dressed for this context but so many people wearing suits in this dang thing i was like it's very to go get a hot mud bag (laughs) yeah (laughs) bizarre yeah Uh, but italian hey you gotta be italian i've heard that is a a mantra (laughs) yeah i um i also think too um so the um, Anouk Ame, um, who's playing Louisa, Guido's mm-hmm. wife. Um, so, I mean, everyone in this movie's good, but I think she's yeah. really lovely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she her performance is really great, and I think something that, like, from a kind of costume design perspective that is interesting is, like, um, he sort of very deliberately made her look not as glamorous as she usually, she usually looked, right? Like, sure. she, she is in La Dolce Vita also, and, like, is like looks very cool, you know, like looks mm-hmm. very glamorous. Um, and in this film, he like made her wear her glasses and like put unflattering makeup on her and like, yeah. um, and she was like not happy about it, um, from what I understand. Um, uh, but she that, still looks, you look great. I still. She still looks look cool. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. She's still like a very beautiful woman. But like, I, I will th- say though, every time that um, oh, I can't. I think her name's Gloria in the movie. Barbara Steele is the actor, a British actor oh, in this movie. Yeah, she's great. Every time she's on stage, I turn into the cartoon wolf, uh, <laughs> just like at the table in a Looney Tunes cartoon. Hey, Whoopi, you better get yeah, and Good I Lord. and I like that. That I, I think it's fun that like Gloria and Guido's friend who is dating Gloria, whose name I, escapes me, Mezzabotta, um, <laughs> Mario Mezzabotta. Yes, you are right. Um, that like um, that the sort of the pair of them are supposed to be like a kind of um, exaggeration of like Guido and his mistress, right? And it's supposed to be like kind of. Um, being like, well, Guido, if you think they're ridiculous, like maybe you should like look at yourself, you yeah. know. But like, and like, Gloria's maybe supposed to be like annoying, sure. But but like, she's the one that I most want to hang out with. That I'm anyone in this yeah. movie. Yeah, <laughs> she seems awesome. <laughs> like it's her and that like jet the magi- black hair and the severe eye makeup. Oh, yeah, it. yeah, it's her and the like magician. That are the, yeah. the people that I <laughs> Man, that I want to hang I, out listen, with. Listen, that magician rules. I was he does. He was great. <laughs> yeah. Um. From what I understand, he was like, um, like a writer, but who was also like also did know magic tricks. Sure. Like that. Um. Yeah, that he would like be pulling magic tricks on people in real life all the time. 
Um, That's very fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but what is his name? Because he, he did another Fellini movie later. Oh. Um, um, but I cannot remember. I know. Is this the guy who's wearing a top hat at the like and has the mind reading sequence? Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah. Delightful shows up, sequence. Uh, towards the end, too. Um, yeah. We gotta talk about. Um, we gotta bo- talk about Saragina. Oh my god! We, oh, ha- yeah. we have to uh, go g- give a good twenty minutes to Saragina. <laughs> so here's the thing about Saragina. Well, like a, in Italian that means like the sardine woman. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Great. Which like love it, but like. Uh, gonna steal it as my new drag name, Saragina. Yeah. Like, um, she's good a good drag name. Hell yeah! An absolute icon, and yes. that is straight up from Fellini's childhood. Really? Like, Wild. yeah, like that this woman who was a sex worker who like lived on the beach in their like little Italian beach town, who they all called Saragina because she would like do sex work for the sailors yeah, and sure. be paid in fish sometimes. Gotcha. Um, or like, fi- like sailors and fishermen, right? And, um, and like it was like a real thing that happened in their childhood once, where like, like a bunch of these little boys, like paid her to do a dance for them, sure. except she like got naked. Yeah. Um. Sure. And that it was like, this like extremely formative experience for him. And then he like went back one other time, and she was just like sitting there singing beautifully, and mm. he like waved to her, and she waved back, and then he ran away. <laughs> And, sure. like, that that is, like, just straight up, like, a, I mean, I don't know what amount of, like, mythologizing, right? Or exaggerating sure, there sure. is there. But, like, yeah, yeah. but he, like, multiple times, like, told this as, like, a true story from his childhood. And, like, and I, and like I, I think, yeah, go ahead. Oh, just, like, it makes me think about how, like, you know, if, like, for David Lynch, the sort of, like, one of the, like, cinematic sort of roots is that time where, like, as a child, he saw a naked woman stumble out of the woods? Sure. For, sure. For Fellini, it's, like, that time that he and his friends, like, had this lady do, a, like, a naked dance for them on the beach, right? Like, that, like, that this image feels like it's being um, recreated in different contexts, or, like, that feeling is being, like, a, sort of nostalgically evoked in a, a number of different contexts, but this is the one where it's, like as true to like it's sort of instantiating the memory in a way absolutely and like mm. i was because obviously and we we sort of t- uh, talked about this especially in knights of Kiberia, which sort of a lot of that sort of uh centers around sort of catholicism and uh Kiberia, mm. who's also a sex worker her own relationship uh with catholicism uh di- i mean i would presume that also the religious aspects of guido's character probably mirror uh, sort of Fellini's own religious upbringing. Yeah, like it seems. It seems to me like Fellini, like <laughs> surprise, had a complicated relationship with Catholicism. Like I don't think he was. Like I think he did consider himself a Catholic, as opposed sure. to someone who was like not a Catholic anymore and was like rejecting it and criticizing it from that angle. Um, but I think, like, did consider himself a Catholic and wanted to, like, criticize the iterations of Catholicism that he thought were 
harmful or like mm-hmm. kind of counter to his way of approaching life. Um, and that like, yeah, there's a lot of Catholic imagery in a lot of his films and in a, in a way where like, I don't know how to articulate like how Italian it is to like <laughs> be super Catholic, but like also be cheating on your wife and like not feel like those things are actually in conflict. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that, 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 like I, I don't, yeah. That this like, um, yeah, it feels very Italian to me. And I'm obviously speaking as an Italian American, which is a very different thing, but it, it like having a sort of selective relationship to Catholicism. Yeah. Feels like our whole deal. A lot of the time. <laughs> a, a selective religious morality, absolutely. And again, I'm, I, I'm not Italian, but I am Jewish, and I feel like there's kind of a little like agreement between between the two. That um, we can we can play each other in movies. Yes, that is the law. That is so like sure. And like like I would love like honestly like uh, especially like after listening to the musical, I'm like I'd love to play Guido. I think that'd be a of great. Of course. Oh, oh my excellent god. Role fucking masterful and i'm like i feel okay about that because because of, of the yeah. pact because of the jewish italian right. pact right which is why like, again chris pratt is like verging on really dangerous oh, territory man. as neither a jew nor an italian playing. Oh, he's a prosperity protestant too <laughs> so you know like the worst kind oh my yeah i i feel like between watching nine or the parts of it that i watched and Chris Pratt, Mario, like <laughs> really, like the universe is testing me. He's also and he's my also... claim that you can't be racist against Italians. <laughs> like every <laughs> seems like you're about are... to start calling for the reinstatement of Columbus Day. Like... <laughs> yeah, it's like, listen, you can't. Uh, yeah, no, it's you cannot. You cannot infringe on the rights of Italian ex Americans. Like, it's, <laughs> it's and also Chris Pratt is playing another Italian adjacent character, Garfield. Love you know of lasagna. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I, I'll play. I feel like, I feel like, J- John could be Protestant. Garfield sure. is obviously Italian. <laughs> of course, he doesn't like to work. He likes Italian food. He's, he, Hates Mondays. He seems to be Italian. Honestly, yeah. seems right to me. Absolutely. Um, but. I don't even, yeah, but anyway, anyway, religion. On the religious tip, like, yes. uh, yeah, the uh, the scene where the he sees the cardinal mm-hmm. and he asks, he's like, I like that um, old, old Metzabota that we were talking about a minute ago is like, hey, get me my, my Mexican this divorce, please. He tell, <laughs> he's like, to get the, convince the, the cardinal to give me my annulment um, while you're in there. But uh, then he goes in there and he just asks, he just says like, I'm not happy, and that's the only thing he even gets to say to him. And he's like, nobody promised you would be happy. What are you talking about? I'm not happy. <laughs> Read the Bible, you idiot. That's <laughs> like, okay, that's, that checks out. That's about as much advice as I ever got from a religious figure also, so, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I think it, like, it also, in some ways, that interaction and that sort of disappointment, I think in some ways that mirrors the ways that he keeps, like, trying to get women to answer his questions for him um like where again like thinking about like male uncertainty that phrase from la dolce vita like that um so much of the problem of eight and a half is 
Guido's inability to make choices, mm-hmm. um, often like yes, no choices or either or choices um, in his relationships, but also like that's right. Like what directing is. And I feel like that gets like directly stated in nine at some point. Right. That like, it's like, you literally just have to answer questions and so much of yeah. the dialogue of eight and a half is people being asked questions and then not answering them or obviously lying or like responding with something that's not an answer to the question. <laughs> and that that's it's... like mirrored in so many different interactions in the film. Yeah. It's wild that they like, again, like as someone who is a, a, a victim of indecision, like they go, they build this, Again, another one of the striking set pieces, striking images in the film is this structure that is being built for this film that isn't going to be made. Um, Also, did Fellini ever make a sci-fi movie? Because that's, I'm curious, because like, that's like what Guido's like, yeah, we're making a a sci-fi. That's, that's it. That's what we're doing. (laughs) So there's more like, there's like supernatural stuff more than there is science fiction stuff like um because he was also interested in that kind of thing um so like there's like seances and stuff like that um as opposed to like um although there's there's a there's like a fake documentary he made about himself sort of, of that's not this sure. <laughs> um, yeah the other the, fake documentary yes um yeah it's something called Fellini a director's notebook that I that I recently watched um that is from I think not that long after and there's also like an abandoned set in that but I believe it was actually constructed to then be described as an abandoned set um it's sort of all very unclear what sure. what role reality has in it um, and it seems, it seems implied that that film that also doesn't get made was a science fiction film. Interesting. So, but yeah, I, none of the films that I've seen, um, and admittedly I have not seen every one of his films yet, sure. but, um, to my knowledge, none of them are science fiction mm-hmm. except for these fictional film, like these non-existent films within films. <laughs> Yes, um, but another. So yeah, I think with uh, songs will wrap up at least on on eight and a half. I love the line that Louisa says. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Where they're sort of like again, there's like Guido's just having all of this reckoning with the various relationships with his with his mistress, with his just like with the people who he's working with, and of course with his wife Louisa, and she's like, I wouldn't cheat on you, I couldn't bear the absurdity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like, it's just like, that's, which is just so telling, right? It's like, she's like a character who is so steeped in both reality, and then also sort of just like, in his own sort of unreality, right? She's like, I know, like, I see the world the way you see it, right? I can see how you see things, like, through such a farcical, cinematic way, that like, me going to this length would, would just be another, another story for you, right? Another, another sort of like extension of your own blending of like film and reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes me think about how like, um, his mistress's husband becomes like this never perceived kind of like archetypical character, just this like absent 
cuck who like (laughs) (laughs) who like well like becomes part of the like you know the the guido's extended cinematic universe Mm -hmm. um where he like is in this sort of um you know demeaned position and i think like i think louisa understands like that that's what happens to people in relation to him right and and you know people who like were in fellini's life like did often talk about how he would like you know sort of use people like use getting to know people for his work Mm -hmm. and that like you know he would often make like two films with somebody Sure. And then and then have like gotten what he felt he could get out of them, right? And then not work with them again. Um, and that a lot of people were like then would like hang around and like try to get him to put them in another film. Like that character that sort of confronts Guido in the hallway, that old man who is like, yeah. you know, don't don't you want me to work for you anymore or whatever. Yeah. It's like that kind of interaction was like something that did really happen because like his you know people who were close to him often talked about how like his real life the life of like Fellini the man was always in service to Fellini the artist right to his work uh Capricorn Sun Moon and Mercury Virgo rising <laughs> Fellini so I, I it's all it's all words it's no <laughs> meaning to me but whatever hey, Gloria is the only one to mention she's like oh this total Aries over here at one point too <laughs> gosh yeah, maniacal um yeah. let's talk about before we wrap this up the the finale of this film this grand yeah. sort of like end point which again is just this like beautiful blend of what is real what is not um, it's 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 the curtain call. It is the mm-hmm. ultimate yeah. sort of like curtain call of the movie that will never be made. It is this a mass of all it, all the characters we've seen, all the characters from uh, Guido's life uh, on this set that will never be used. Um, plus a marching band, plus a little mm-hmm. circus band led by a child, led by him as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah, sort that's... of the implication. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the same actor that plays him in as a child in the in flashback the... scenes. Yeah, um, I like they it's... literally pulled the curtain back and everybody walks down the stairs. Yeah, oh, the bow. Like, yeah, that shot is incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so good. And again, it's just like they. Like, Again, just like the the magnificence of like early cinema, they built all this shit. This was right. real stuff that they were on. Correct. Yeah, the you know, and where they built that thing is actually like apparently like the field where Pasolini got murdered, like huh. later. <laughs> well, well yeah. then. <laughs> um, but yeah, the like the physicality of the structure, right? I think really, and the and Fellini films in general were like um at least the later ones were mostly built like the sets were constructed (laughs) um and that's some of the like departure from neorealism stuff like neorealist films are often on locations because a lot of the studios were like bombed and such were like in disarray from the war (laughs) um but then like um I think it's like Studio Five at Cinecita or whatever was like where Fellini would always like was always building elaborate things. Um, yeah. Although this the like rocket launch pad is like in an actual 
outdoor yeah. location because yes. it's huge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the like kind of part of what makes his films look the way that they do is like how much stuff was specially constructed for them all the time. Cool. Yeah. It's glorious. It is Good a, movie. again like it's listen. I watched it twice within two days, <laughs> folks. Um, no, it is like, I know that there are like a lot of films that are lobbed around as like, oh, this is the best thing ever made or like the one of the greatest. Like, there is a reason. There is a, it is a beautiful film with clearly so much to dig into, so much glorious imagery, a lot to say sort of about the artistic process, about mm. the stagnation of even just like, even if you're not like an artist, just like, trying to just like be a person and just like maintain relationships with your work. It's just, there's a lot to say in this thing and it looks mm -hmm. beautiful and everyone's a cutie. That's, that's mm -hmm. another thing mm -hmm. on top yeah, of everything and like, else. And what a, like a hugely influential film. Yes. Like, oh yeah. Like I feel like most big name directors cite Fellini as an influence at some point. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. and often it's this film. Yeah. Again, um, again, because it, it is because it is about the struggle of artistic prose. I mean, it is it's Fellini owning up to the fact that hey, sometimes I go through shit and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. It's mm -hmm. that as a movie, and it's like I don't know. There's there's something humble about that, right? Like making a movie <laughs> about how much you don't know. It's right. like a more. It reminds. It makes me think of like a more uplifting, like Synecdoche, New York, mm. from Synecdoche, New York. Uh, yeah, yeah. Kaufman, or yeah. even like on some level, uh, Sunny in the Park with George, and how much sure. that show is about like the creative process and separating yourself and extracting your life from your art and still making both of them work. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. It's a great movie. Great movie. Uh. Too bad Guido didn't hadn't uh, you know wasn't familiar with ethical non-monogamy. It could have worked out just fine for him. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what a shame! What a guy! Yeah. What a shame! And uh, yeah, and if if people like this movie, I would really recommend um, watching the the film he made after this, Juliet of the Spirits. Yeah, um, it's from two years later, um, and the cast of that is really phenomenal, and it's like, be it's in like vivid color and is really beautifully shot and is like it, it's great hell yeah um speaking cool. of sunday in the park with george uh which is a musical uh and actually a sort of a <laughs> well it's a and it's also you know it's a musical from the 80s that has a little bit of a surrealist yeah. frame mm. to it um which is something i'm interested in exploring here so mm -hmm. nine you take eight and a half you're putting some music. Apparently, according to math, that makes nine. Um, so, yeah. So, this was Maury Yeston's brainchild. Apparently, he saw Eight and a Half as a teenager. And, like, like most artists, it kind of resonated with him. He was like, wait, you can be 40 and still feel like that? I love it. Um, so, like, and, like, he, he developed this at a workshop. He started developing it with a writer called Mario Fratti. Apparently, that original book uh, just wasn't working. So they replaced that guy with Arthur Kopitz. Uh, and then we get Nine. Nine the musical, uh, which I contend uh, rules. I think it's great. Um, it is, I think, so obviously, like, you're not going to top eight and a half. I'm not saying that. Like, I would never, I wouldn't <laughs> venture to say that, like, this is better than eight and a half. That is a... Uh, a wild thing to say. I, but, like, 
I admire that it is taking a sort of similar approach of trying to make like almost like a surrealist musical or trying to like make something that's a little like like the stage equivalent of like what eight and a half is as a movie right you know it's it's at least in the original production and then like past like future productions it's like very sort of like bare in its theatrical nature it's it, a lot of like overlapping characters and sort of like the actual like reality of the thing is sort of like all over the place i kind of admire that it isn't trying to take like a linear approach to the material it's sort of and it's it's really it feels like a surreal like concert almost that guido is putting on which i think i kind of admire about it as a piece um i don't yeah, know I think the kind of the the feeling of like conducting, I do yes. think, is um, like fundamental to Fellini's directing style, like creating these really elaborate kind of choreographic situations. And then sometimes you would literally be like standing on something, kind of conducting people mm -hmm. to be like, especially there's some of those shots in Eight and a Half where like moving through an area and there's a ton of people and like right when the camera gets over here this person turns around like that kind of thing mm -hmm. like he would be kind of you know standing on something yelling and pointing at things and um and kind of acting like a conductor yeah and i i feel like that that sort of feeling of organized chaos does feel evoked by the script for this show in a way that like did not feel present in the film version at all. Right. So and, uh, so I think that here's the the best place to say that. So yeah, obviously we got Sid onto this episode and they made a, the fair decision to be like, oh, there's already a film version of this musical. I might as well watch it. Starring uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Starring. No less. A famous Italian Daniel Day Lewis, <laughs> right. as... who, who I do love. Like he is one of the best actors of all time. But no he question. Should not have been in this film. No, well, and, and like it's okay. Yeah, like I'm fine with seeing him in a musical. I would love to see him in a musical where he was not playing an Italian. Sure. Because <laughs> I don't believe it for a second. No, absolutely and not. Everyone Jewish? He's not he's Jewish. He's like Irish. Yeah, he's, he's very <laughs> Irish. Um, Dee Lewis not Jewish? No. Okay. DDL. Not Jewish, no. No. Um, DDL believes in hell. Really <laughs> and then, yeah, and like everyone's accent <laughs> in the film is a mess. Like, I don't yeah. know what Ma Marion Cotillard is doing there. Yeah, like, I mean, the so only person who should be there is Sophia Loren. It's that's fine. fair. And, and, and Rob, so this was Rob Marshall directed it, and this was his big musical follow up to Chicago. And I mean, I think sure. the, the big thing with Nine, the musical movie, is that like, then you are competing with eight and a half, right? That's right. the thing. Like you're, it's okay for nine to be a stage show because it's working in a completely different medium from eight and a half. It's employing different tricks. It's working in a different structure and medium. But like when you bring it back to the film world landscape, it's like, oh, well now you're just competing with eight and a half. And like Rob, I'm sorry, Rob Marshall, you ain't no Fellini. I'm going to say that. Uncontroversial yeah. take. Yeah, well, because, like, in part because, like, the it's, for one thing, it feels like it's shot, like, documentation of a musical. Like, every, like, the way that the camera doesn't move very much. Sure. And, like, the way that the framing of everything is, like, very conventional. It 
the in contrast to like the sort of floaty dreamy camera movement of eight and a half and like mm-hmm. the way everything is shot also is like very feels very flat mm-hmm. like the cinematographer is the same cinematographer uh as chicago but also the same cinematographer as gemini man which is like arguably one of the worst movies ever made well well <laughs> Sid, there are worse movies than Gem- <laughs> gemini man is interesting give oh, me I mean, that yeah no i mean like worst looking oh sure sure yeah hey, i didn't see it in the high frame rate i'm i can't judge it yeah, it makes me want to throw up because the high frame rate, but it's like it collapsed. Everything looks super flat. Feature of cinema, baby. Yeah, and so like, um, so that's who shot the movie for nine. Yes, that cinematographer. But yeah, um, so we're not. Maybe we'll talk about that on the Patreon someday. But yeah. no, we're not. And maybe we'll have you back to rail against that. Yeah, I'll watch the second half of it for that if you want. Maybe. Um, uh, I don't know but, if I want to put you through that. Right. But, you know, but that being said, like, I I went into reading the script for the show with, like, a lot of skepticism because I had watched the first half of the film version of the show yes. and was like, this is dog shit. Yes. Um, and <laughs> so, but, like, I think actually, especially the way that it is, like, the, the script is kind of presented in like a jumble of four languages. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, it's like the four that I can read. So I was sure. having a good time. <laughs> um, humble brag on that one, I guess. Yeah, but like, for real. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but like that, that feeling that is evoked sometimes in eight and a half and in Fellini films in general, I think of like, or just like being around Italians generally um, of just like, eight people are talking at the same time yeah. and kind of don't know what the fuck is happening. The, on the page, the script does kind of evoke that in a way that I was really excited yeah, I think Yeah, I think it, because it is like, uh, this is early 80s musical theater, which I feel like, and this is like a really broad look at where like Broadway or New York musical theater was at this point. But you know, like this is like, Post Sweeney, pre Sunday in the Park, if we're using Sondheim musicals as <laughs> as markers, but like, yeah, this is like I feel like this is a point where musical theater is either trying to, I mean, this is obviously you're getting we're encroaching on stuff like Cats and Phantom and the big budget <laughs> British bombast musicals, and then you're also getting these sort of more uh like stylized like intellectual shows like like the son the ilk of sondheim and that and then you are you know a few years later you're gonna get stuff like lacage which are almost like callbacks to the like like the golden age of musical theater as they like to call it and then even the same year like dream girls comes out so like there's it is a really fascinating time for new york musical theater um where i think that there's almost and again like this is also like the time where we like to talk about where musical theater has like taken such a diversion from where the rest of popular culture is at this point. It is sort of in its own strange bog of a place where it is like just doing its own thing while like the rest of pop culture is doing its own thing. Um, Arguably stuff like Cats and Les Mis kind of ties back more to 80s culture than something like Nine would. But I think it sort of speaks to the level of playfulness that 
Copit and Yeston were willing to to delve into, where they're like, we can do whatever the fuck we want. This is a Fellini <laughs> adaptation. We don't I like, and I and I I don't know. I kind of respect that. I kind of like. I love it. I love how it, it's a messy show. It is like yeah. it is unabashedly a messy piece of musical theater writing, and I kind of admire it for that. Mm. And I'm a person that like loves cats and. Um, I really appreciate um, shows like Les Mis and Miss Saigon that would come after that. But there is, it, it is kind of a bummer that those huge, bombastic, like narrative driven, ensemble cast driven um, shows that Schoenberg and Boubille like would go on to make are really what caught off and what made the most money. Yeah. As opposed to something like this. And we just don't really, and you know, for a long time, we don't get anything that's kind of introspective and weird for lack of a better term for a long time. At least like weird in a different way than cats is weird. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And I'll say, say, honestly, like, thinking on it now, I feel like Nine in its own way, not in content, but definitely in form, is, feels like a precursor to something like Fun Home. Like, Mm, another show that sort of has uh, a sort of self-reflexive, multiple timelines, really loose uh, structure in that sort of way. Um, and I know it's that's that's something that's really fascinating to me. Um, I want to take a little brief detour and talk about a brand like we were texting this morning, and like the music in this thing is like, like godly, excellent. Like the the songs in this thing are like, it is like arguably one of the greatest musical theater scores ever written. Oh, fantastic! I think it like takes a lot of cues from the film, the music choices in the film yes. too. Which so it feels like most of the movie, and I might be wrong, I think there's a composer listed, but most of it's like selections of like Ride of the Valkyrie and uh, the opening of the Barber of Seville. And, you know, yeah, he uses all these like yeah. classical Nino music Ro- Nino, drops. Nino Rota, yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah, and Nino Rota like would, um, worked with, with Fellini multiple times and um, they would generally like compose music to get like, Nino Rota would sit down and write things for the film after the film was cut. Um, and so a lot of the kind of music, um, like when Saragina is dancing, that's mm-hmm. music written by uh, Nino Rota. Like mm. um, there are basically everything that's like not those really recognizable <laughs> sure. like, classical music, sure. like Ride of the Valkyries, like sort of um, big moments like that um the music kind of throughout the film is by is by nina rota nina Mm -hmm. rota and he um and they would like he would like sit at a piano in his little apartment with fellini next to him and like try things out and fellini would be like yes this or no not this that kind of thing and like and like yeston maury yeston like again like like this is his one of his first like major scores but you know like he'd go on to he'd do a lot of the song rewrites for Grand Hotel. He would go on to write uh, the songs for Titanic, the musical, not based on the movie, just a musical about the Titanic, um, which Fascinating. is a bizarre thing that exists and one best musical. Um, sure it's bananas. Uh, and uh, But like, I, I don't know, this score, I mean, the score, he, he won the Tony for it. Well-deserved. Um, Correct. Like it's, it is, I mean, it's operatic. 
it is uh, there's kind of almost like a pop flair to it it's like un like unusual way is like a pop ballad like it is just one of the most it is a beautiful song it's one of the most beautiful musical theater ballads in my opinion it mm -hmm. is just and like there are funny songs there are just like really gorgeous like songs that just act as recitative there's just and even the lyrics i think are actually very witty and clever in their own right I don't know. It's it. That's and like the. I think the messiness of the book and like Arthur Copet, who had sort of written a bunch of like oddball off Broadway plays in the years prior to this, sort of like brings that messiness to the Broadway stage in again a way that I think maybe we need a little bit more of that messiness. Um, it's better than whatever nonsense we're getting these days. But I don't know. I think the sort of the the. The, the clarity of the songwriting, I think, helps to ground the show in with sort of the strange way that the that the script works. I mean, it, it certainly it does seem like the people who made this musical understood that eight and a half is kind of funny. Sure. Yes. Right. right? Mm. Like that. Like apparently, while filming. I forget what sequence um, of eight and a half, but there was literally like a like a little sign under the camera that said in Italian, like this is a funny movie. Sure, <laughs> like to remind the actors. <laughs> um, and I, I think, um, I, again, not to keep talking about the film of nine, but like it it sure. seemed to not it seemed to not have a sense of humor yeah, it's, about it, itself it's very easy to sort of convince yourself that there should be a lot of self-seriousness with this material right and i think yes. that's a lot of how people per who have not seen eight and a half perceive it as a film because of how certain types of film bros talk about it yes is like <laughs> like with like such gravitas mm -hmm. all the like, reverence yeah yeah but like the way that like you know, some of the movements are literally like clown movements, right? Like there are elements of like farce happening mm -hmm. um, when he's like literally trying to hide from people. Like there's like funny stuff happening here. And, and, and reading this script, it seems like that is understood. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate it. Um, obviously, one of the big sort of conceits of the stage show that I, I feel we got to talk about is the fact that it's the sort of the grand conceit of the show that they've sort of that they've extrapolated from eight and a half is that i mean it's they're not wrong is that you know it's a show about guido and the women in his life and so mm -hmm. they've sort of made a very conscious choice to have guido be the uh, guido and the young boy of guido be the only uh male characters in the show and uh sort of usually it is cast as such um, so I was curious because yeah, in the script it's formatted like in a very like interesting but kind of difficult to read way, where like yes. characters have like two different names depending on the gender of the actor who's playing the character, but like it's like both names are listed every time. I know, yes, and especially uh, I know uh, Lillian Lafleur, who's uh, who they can be cast as either whatever gender the hell, um, but I don't know. It's it was, so that was an interesting concept. Of course, the original Broadway production was directed by Tommy Toon. Whoa! I know! I did not know that. Oh, yeah! Well, like, big couple years for him. The next year, he won his Best Actor Award. Yeah, he won the Tony for this. He won the Tony for directing this. Fuck yeah. Good for you, Tommy Toon. <laughs> he did. He came in 
one time. <laughs> I'm sorry, redacted piano bar. Yes, you got <laughs> bleep that. Yeah, bleep that. You got it. Hilarious. Uh, He's very tall, as you would assume. Yeah, yes, I would say Le- so. All, all legs, that guy. <laughs> kind of like Daniel Day-Lewis. Just, just a couple legs and a head on top. It's a good, good dance with those Toothpicks in an olive. <laughs> um, but it is also wild. Like, it is wild that this and Dream Girls came out the same year. Right? Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like... And, and Fiddler, right? F- Fiddler? Not Fiddler. Well, it wasn't Herschel up for it. Maybe it was a revival then. If it was, uh, I don't know. Because I saw that like the the lead actor, because we haven't even talked about who the lead in this show is. Oh, right? my Which, gosh. Like, that I course. do know about, and I am excited. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there was a Fiddler. Yeah, Herschel Bernardi. Was, I knew Herschel's, yeah. yeah, but he didn't win either because it went to Dreamgirls. Yeah, yeah, Ben Hawney, who played Curtis in Dreamgirls. Yeah, oh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, again, obviously, we're talking about just the show itself. But, yes, in the original Broadway production, I mean, I will say, so... Raul Julia played uh, uh, Guido in Nine. I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then it's so funny because then in the Broadway revival, Antonio Banderas played him. And I'm like, what? I'll allow that one. What is happening? Yeah. Like, yeah, they're but both. It's, like, it's, it's weird as a pattern. <laughs> yes. It's, like, it's strange. Like being like, I, I just wonder, like. <laughs> there are Italians. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you think there never was a Michelangelo? The way they treat people. Did you know that an Italian invented the telephone? Alexander Graham Bell was Italian? You see? You see what I'm talking? Antonio Meucci invented the telephone and he got robbed. Everybody knows that. They're right. all Italian. Like, again, like, <laughs> no disrespect to Raul or Antonio. Who right. Are, like, who are both, right. both wonderful in this role. It is also, it is bananas. Sure do a great job. It is bananas that Raul didn't get the Tony. Right? Isn't that kind of yeah, weird? It's wild. <laughs> did he have one? Did he win one ever? Uh, these are great questions, which I'm going to look up. But yeah, it's, I don't know. It's just, it's, yeah, it seems bizarre that, like, he he never won a Tony. Very sad. He should have won one. Uh. Um, but like he's like he's carrying this show, right? Like yeah. mm-hmm. this is the Guido show. Um, Absolutely. But yeah, so obviously, so yeah, uh, Dream Girls like sweeps the lead actor categories. Uh, the actor who played uh, Lillianne uh, Lafleur, whose name was also Lillianne in Keeping the Eight and a Half Fellini Spirits, Great. naming the characters <laughs> after the actors. Um, That's so she, fun. So she won supporting actress, um, which, yeah, I get that. Fun role. Uh, Tommy Toon won director. Um, book went to Dream Girls. Score went to Nine. And then, yeah, Best Musical went to, to nine as well. The other two nominees this year, bizarre, bizarre year. Y'all, this is a bizarre Best Musical <laughs> year. So nine wins. Dreamgirls is also nominated. The other nominee is Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoats, <laughs> which, of course, was written like a decade or so earlier, but I guess just didn't get to New York until now. Oh. I don't know. Yeah, because I was going to say, that sounds wrong to me in terms of time. Yes. And then the other nominee is Pump Boys and Dinettes. Oh, my God. It feel it That's... really does feel like a like a great sample of what musical theater was in this moment in the 1980s in New York. Like, genuinely. Yeah, it's funny because I was trying to think about, like, the movies that came out in 1982 just like thinking about what was going on in like the popular culture landscape of film at that time um which is like you know the biggest movie at this time was was et 
Sure, yeah. Wild. Yeah. But, like, yes, you got, like... Like, Blade you... Runner also came out. <laughs> yes. I mean, you've got, like, a weird, like, uh, like performance, like, review show with Pump Boys and Dinettes. You have an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. You have a big pop musical with Dreamgirls. And then you have this sort of, like, more avant-garde take on the on the genre. So it's just... Mm-hmm. It's interesting to sort of see, see all of those in the mix and then nine wins out obviously i feel like dream girls is the more popular choice and that i feel like in the world of musical theater that has sort of got on to sort of become sort of the more notable piece of musical theater but like oh yeah i didn't know nine existed until you brought it up i mean it's not done a lot <laughs> brand like can you think of like the last time that nine has been produced no on a large scale I'm trying to think of, I feel like maybe a regional theater here did it, but not one of the, I don't think it was one of the big ones. I feel like it was a no. smaller one and maybe even as like a concert kind of a sure. or lower budget mm-hmm. type thing. Yeah. But come on, somebody do it. It's so good. Yeah. I, I mean, like, are there some changes they've made, which we haven't really talked about the differences much. No, but we, we, we should. We should address a few yeah, of them. Yeah, I mean, there's like, there's like um, it starts with them. It starts like really by centering his and the wife's relationship yes. at the top and like putting that conflict already out there of like her maybe wanting a divorce. And uh, whereas in the movie that doesn't really come up until like halfway through no. when she shows up. Um, and um, yeah, it's just, it's not filled with quite as much like fantastic realism. Um, no, I mean, like, I guess it's, that's replaced with just the the existence of songs, I suppose. Right? It's sure. like you right. can't you can't you can only do so much on a stage. So I guess they're just like yeah, it's like sort of like what what are we actually gonna be able to do best in a musical version of Eight and a Half? And I guess it's just like keeping the themes, keeping the characters and the relationships, and then sort of like extrapolating them out into these different numbers, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it like it, it seems like it attempts to retain some of the like non-linear structure of the mm-hmm. film. Yeah. In and I think because like that's so important to what makes the film something. Yeah. You know? Is it's kind of like formal quality of of like bouncing through t- both time and the sort of and and fantasy reality. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm just, I, I, my, my big hot take is that I don't know why the hell there's an intermission in this thing. I think it's completely unnecessary. I think you can mm. just do this thing one end to the other. I mean, the script, I mean, the script really, is only, it's not super long. It's not a long show. It's really checking all my boxes. <laughs> <laughs> Except there are kids, but you know. I know there, and you can't really cut the kids. Like he's no, kind, you can't. Kind of essential. You can yeah. maybe justify only having one kid, but like I think that might you, be the move. You yeah. still gotta have a kid. He sings a song. He sings a cute he song. Sings a song. <laughs> Which again, I think that the musical really does sort of hammer home. The uh, Sid, you kind of addressed it a little bit earlier. The theme of like he's a kid. Like Guido's a kid who's got to right. fucking grow up. 
Um, right. And, like, the, the musical does hammer that home. There is a really fucking on-the-nose line near the end where the character known as Our Lady of the Spa just fucking spells out the theme of the show. She's like, you know, as far as I could see, his creative life has uh, become so bound to his personal that they're all falling apart and there's no separation anymore. And I'm like, <laughs> right. you don't have Which to is- tell us that. We get like, it. We know. Right. We're watching Nine. <laughs> Right, and like, and like, that's the kind of thing that people who knew him would say in interviews. Sure, <laughs> but like, that is, I, I, I do feel like part of the ap- appeal for me about Eight and a Half is like how much of it is like imagistically communicated and sure. doesn't need to be explicitly linguistically stated. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that this kind of um, using imagery to convey somebody's emotional states in, in that way is, is, I think, part of the fun of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it does feel a little, like, unnecessary <laughs> to just sort of make the subtext text. But that's kind of how musicals tend to operate, which is, I think, part of why I'm not the biggest musical person. Because sure. I was like, you just, you just, you just said the thing in a rhyming cl- couplet. You just like <laughs> went out and said it. Sure. You mean they sang it <laughs> in a rhyming couplet? Y- you are right. <laughs> yeah. It also, it also, I mean, like, I think it's it's tough because like eight and a half is such this like beautiful object that all of us are like obviously falling over for good reason, and like nine I think is great because it's obviously it's 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 both inspired by the thing, but I think it does it it does a decent job at trying to be its own distinct work from eight and a half as much as it is as it is inextricably tied to the thing i mean they literally changed the guy's last name for whatever that's <laughs> worth he's guido anselmi in the film and he's guido contini in the in the musical i guess contini maybe has a little bit of a nicer ring to it when being singing sung. it's better yeah, to sing exactly yeah. um but yeah so i think i don't know that's sort of why I'm still so enamored by Nine as a stage show, is that sort of it, it can stay... You know, we talk about this a lot with, with shows we talk about here. Like, can they stand on their own uh, apart from their source material? And I, I genuinely think Nine can. I think you will yeah. you'll be a richer person for having seen Eight and a Half because it is a right. masterpiece of a thing. But, like, I think Nine is so distinct in its form from the movie, distinct in the relationships, in the literal storytelling from the film, that I think it's able to be a thing that a lot of people love. And again, I'm kind of surprised that we don't see more productions of it. Yeah, I want to see like a a looking glass production. Yeah. You know, somebody that's got, that will do something really funky with the staging. Cause you can like, there's like you can, it's one of those scripts, like, like through Samuel French or Concord theatricals, whatever the fuck they're called these days, where like, it's one of those things where like, they've clearly written down all the stage directions and notes from the original Broadway production. Mm -hmm. But I think it is a beautiful show where again, you can really, do whatever you want with it from a design perspective, uh, from just, uh, from any kind of which way. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, Jane Krakowski won a Tony award for it. Bizarre. Weird. 
She played. Who'd she play? Carla. Right, right. This she, stands to reason. She yeah. called. She called from the Vatican, which is a fun song. It's a funny. It's a funny song. A call from the Vatican. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would definitely be curious to see a production of this because I think, I think I would probably like it more than I think I would. If that sure. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, Somebody pay me to direct it. I'm full of ideas. Who's <laughs> <laughs> got like half a mil lying around we can throw at this thing? <sighs> sure. Well, especially too because like I feel like the like costume design and makeup design is such a huge part of Fellini films. Yes. That to really see a like lavish production of this would mm-hmm. be really fun. Yeah. Be, I and mean, I, I feel like you can do so much with just like. Yeah, costume and lighting, especially. I think this yes. is a film, a film. I think this is a stage show that doesn't need like. I mean, you. I'm sure you could be really creative with the scenic design, but I think it is a it is a musical that really thrives on like great lighting design, great sort of like evocative, um, this imagery of how like the bodies are moving in space and how they're sort of like again because like it like I said it is almost like a concert. It is like a concert that Guido is conducting until he is sort of like pushed the limits of everyone. It does like, yeah, it's, it, I don't know. It's, it's good. I mean, it's like a circus, right? It is, it is yeah. like a circus. It is again, like thematically it is, it's tied to the film. It really is. And whatever. I think, I think it is one of the best things that we'll ever talk about. I genuinely do. I, I, I love it. I do. Sue me. <laughs> don't sue me. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, but- I mean, I I think your enthusiasm is uh is is inspiring me to to rethink a little bit. Just I don't, just <laughs> listen to the album. I honestly like every v- album of nine is good, except the movie. The movie is mm-hmm. silly. They they wrote so many bad songs for that movie adaptation as well. Um, mm. like fucking uh. Cinema Italiano and uh, the song that replaces Beyond Your Own and also like Fergie is Fergie is a bad uh, Sarah I, uh, Sarah, the, Sarah I when no. the the moment when they like revealed Sarah Gina, I literally screamed yeah Not I was good. so mad bad I I scre- I was like first I was just screaming because. She was like ginger, and then I was, <laughs> then I was screaming because I real, and then I was screaming because like she didn't have a, like, big yeah. gigantic beautiful ass. I know. And Edra, then I Edra, and- it was Edra Gale, the original Saragina, beautiful ass. I'm just gonna go right. on record and like, saying it. And like Fellini, like Fellini esque is literally a word that like t- tends to sort of euphemistically mean just like being like a giant woman sure. who is like hotter and meaner and stronger than you. Right. Like, sure. um, and I feel like the fact that like all of the women in this film are like daintier mm-hmm. than they are in eight and a half made me mad. But anyway, but- Fergie was such a weird choice. And then, so like once I realized it was Fergie, I was like, what is happening? This all feels Bizarre. like 
weird like people's agents trying to strike deals with each other nonsense sure. casting. <laughs> so as odd. opposed to like what makes any sense for anyone in the film exactly um, um no but like but the, yeah. the broadway recording is great the revival recording with antonio banderas is great the, there's even a london recording with jonathan price which is actually okay i would say it's my least favorite of the three stage recordings out there but it's okay but yeah like the two new york recordings. oh jonathan price playing a role other than a white guy huh no <laughs> way I, you know what? don't believe it even do an italian face huh <laughs> marinara face it's, it's, yeah My he God. loves doing it he does he, he, he loves it he really gets off and he'll cut hey he'll come up whenever we get to a vita on the patreon uh yep. my gosh um eight and a half and nine two great numbers Two great pieces of art. That's all I. That's all I fucking got. Um, Sid Bronca, our wonderful friend and good luck charm. Thank you for being here. Um, so now we've come. Delighted to be here. Of course, we're we're at the end now. We're at the end of the episode, and we, of course, like every episode of Movie the Musical, we have to end by asking our guest a very important question. So, Sid Bronca. I know, you've been racking your brain. I, something will come to you in the next 10 seconds. I know it. So, Sid Branca, if you could adapt any movie into a musical that has not been adapted already, what movie would you choose? I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Um, because I was so pleased with myself for my selection last time. Holy Mountain, um, still haven't watched it. I'm, I'm gonna. It's really good, and I do think it would be fascinating um, as as a piece of musical theater. Yes, Um, but I like hmm because I think like part of what makes something like a good musical Mm -hmm. right is like feeling like it is. structured in a way that like allows for songs to happen if that makes sense and i feel like i don't know i feel like so many of the movies that i like are like weird and sprawling or like really sort of densely compacted can i in a way that can i give you an answer because i think you would agree that this is i i I never do this but i know i know (laughs) i don't want to leave you hanging but i have an answer that i think will suit you really well thinking about the movies that you love and thinking about the movies that you've seen recently. Mm. I, I, will, I will hear your, your suggestion and, and consider it. I think you gotta do To Tame. <laughs> 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 I think it's obvious. Wow. Come on. To Tame. I'm trying to imagine. It, it's it, it's very operatic, honestly. Mm, mm-hmm. I feel like it could honestly be a really good opera. Yeah, that makes more sense to me than a musical. Yes. Somehow. I, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> right? Come mm. on. Yeah. I mean, I feel like all of the things that are springing to mind for me are like, Things that are maybe too on the nose because they already incorporate music into them, like pretty substantially. That's fine. Like, there's uh, no wrong answer, right? Like, like Dario Argento's opera as a musical. Sure. 
like as, an, as an extremely extremely violent musical is there a stage version of phantom of the paradise yet I don't think there is. Which is bizarre, because Paul shocking. Williams, I feel like, would, would leap at the opportunity to bring like, to the it stage. It should be a stage musical, right? Like, yeah. it 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 feels like... Because I think I thought about that as my answer last time, and I didn't say it because it felt like it was cheating somehow. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I think Phantom of the Paradise would be amazing as a stage show. All right, well, we're going to lock it uh, in. Gonna right. lock it in the vault where we keep these ideas, <laughs> where we <laughs> keep our yeah. movie the musical suggestion theatrical right. universe. Yeah, if someone if someone wants to pay me to direct a stage production of Phantom of the Paradise, uh, just uh, give me a call. We should. I should make a like a letterboxed list of all of these, all of the suggestions that our guests have given. Oh yeah, and I then think that's a great release idea. that out. Maybe I'll I'll have that ready by the time that this episode debuts on Monday. I don't know. Uh, incredible i can dream uh sid thank you for being here um yeah this episode comes out on monday is there anything that you want to share plug people can find you on twitter and and letterboxd and all that good stuff yeah i'm i'm sid bronca on on twitter and on letterboxd and i occasionally produce content in those places (laughs) um am i doing anything soon I'm like trying to make a short film this winter. I remember you. So... So, yeah, I remember you talking about that. Yeah, perhaps by the you know, if you'll have me on again sometime, perhaps by the next time <laughs> I'll have that done, so I can so I can promote it. <laughs> right. Um. Well, we love having you on, and hopefully, we'll find another brilliant piece of musical theater that we can have you on for, so we can, or maybe we'll find a really bad one to break the streak. I don't know. <laughs> Either way, I look forward to it. Hell yes. Um, thank you for being here, Sid. I want to thank Brand Moorhead, as always, for producing and editing this show. Uh, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. I want to thank Emily Harrington for our artwork. I want to thank M. Modaf and Josh Stanley for our kick-ass theme song. If you like the show, be sure to rate us, review us, subscribe for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at MovieTheMusical. And if you want to support the podcast, get some sweet bonus content, maybe hear Sid Branca talk about the Little Shop of Horror's movie, uh, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash musical. consider becoming a monthly member. Uh, and as a reminder, Friday, November 19th at 8pm at Davenport's Piano Bar and Cabaret here in Chicago, Illinois, uh, you can come see movie, the musical, the cabaret, and it's going to be fun. And it's going to be nice. And maybe you'll get a special prize. Um, that's our show. Keep on singing. Uh, I don't know. Can, Bran, can you put in like a little like Mario saying Mamma Mama Mia, Mia to end the episodes? <laughs> I'm going to put in me transforming into a Tex, Ted Avery, or Tex Avery wolf again because I'm looking up pictures of Barbara Steele in this movie. <laughs> and... Aruga! Aruga! <laughs> <laughs>